Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. September 2nd, 2014, episode 63. While you were away. The Beekeeper's Corner Podcast is a place where we talk about the practices of beekeeping. Here we cover beekeeping insights, provide advice, relay learnings and experiences, share news, interviews, and other items about beekeeping, and, well, just about anything on the topic of keeping bees. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kevin England. I feel like I should share the premise of the episode title, While You Were Away, and its context to the episode. So firstly, I've been away for a while. I went to a wedding in St. Louis since our last recording, and then we took a vacation to Puerto Rico. During the downtime, I was thinking about things that were on the pile for the next episode. Long overdue for coverage, and the context of While You Were Away is about bringing the things to light that are still very relevant to cover. So let me go through what's going to be in this episode and give you some insight on that. Segment one, we'll talk about honey versus sugar solutions and the impact to gene expression. Segment number two, the number of USB colonies, a source of truth for colony numbers. Segment number three, sublethal imidacloprid is real. And in my opinion, it is only a matter of time before something has to come of these findings. Segment number four, bumblebees with honeybee diseases. After the segments are over, we'll dive into roundtable stinging nettle for beekeeping, application of formic acid, coverage of the great tomato testing event, a creamed honey preparation update, making infused honey, and a term of the episode, eclosion. If you're familiar with our podcast, you know that it's time for the Local Hive Report. Local Hive Report. The local hive report is where we talk about our local hives and anything that we've learned about it. We have 10 hives on the property and all as well. I've pretty much left the hives alone recently, but got a chance to look into a couple things this past weekend. There are five hives on what I refer to as the bench. At some point when I was setting up hives in the spring, I ran out of pads. So I put two cinder blocks and two 4x4 posts to serve as rails. I'm positive I mentioned this in the past episode, but it makes sense when I start talking about the hives. And when I say pad, I'm talking about concrete blocks that have a PVC hive stand where each individual hive stands. In this case, they're all together on the rail. So I checked the hives on the bench from one end to another, and they were all pretty much mediocre. On August 3rd, before I went away, I put feeders on five of the ten hives. I chose the ones that were really light and in trouble if they didn't get something to eat before we went away on vacation. The first activity was checking the first hive on the bench for mites. It was good. The hive is a little light on stores and has some bees, but it could use more. Hive 2 on the bench has good stores and in the zone for mites. It had 4 mites for the sample of 300 bees, which makes it a watch, but I'm okay with leaving it be for now. In other words, not treating it. Hive 3 on the bench has eh for stores, (laughs) and it would be nice if these ladies could figure out how to draw comb in the upper box and the frames that they have at their disposal. 
I guess it's not reasonable of me to ask a first-year hive to go gangbusters, but I did hope for a bit more. This hive was captured as a swarm and started with more resources than some of the others, but it seems a little further behind. Concerning mites, oh boy. The mite load was through the roof. There were 13 mites for 300 bee sample. It is loaded and it needs to be treated right away. I kicked myself for not having the time to check the mites before I went away. Early August, not September, is the right time to treat. And I've preached that for a long, long time. This hive is walking dead and it doesn't know it. And I'm still going to treat and hope for the best. So the funny thing about it is it's been in operation since the middle of the spring flow. And you would have thought with the nectar flow that it would have built out that second box. But for whatever reason, they just weren't drawing wax. I don't know what the deal is with this hive. If anything, this is going to be the slowest hive I think I have. Hive number four on the bench is an all-medium beast. It started with a walkaway split. It has five mediums on the stack, and it is loaded with bees all the way to the roof. It actually has been bearding each day, and I have to wonder if I should put some additional space on top, lest it get the idea to do a swarm late in the season. The topmost box is foundation, though, like the other one, and... I noticed on Saturday that they're starting to build that out, but I don't know why they're so slow. I did pull some drawn comb from below to entice them in late July, early August, but thus far, they haven't gone to town up there. Now, July 15th is when the nectar flow for the spring stopped here in New Jersey, but I still would have thought they would have enough resources to draw out some wax and do some work. The last hive on the bench is a nucleus hive. It was solid through and through the bottom box in early August with supplies and bees. So I put a box on top and interchanged one frame from the bottom in the top using the same method to hope in hopes of enticing them to go topside. Again, they just haven't done much up there. They're solidly situated in the bottom box. I had put a blank frame down there. They built that out and everything is good. They started to draw some comb in the top box, but really haven't moved up there at all. So if I had to assess what's going on and generally on the bench, it's not out of character for New Jersey in August. They can find pollen, but there's no nectar around, and this is our dearth period. The good news is our goldenrod seems to have come early this year, and there's asters blooming by the side of the road also. It's game on for the fall flow any time now, but when I looked in some of the hives in early August, and when I got back from Puerto Rico, you could see that there wasn't a lot of nectar stored up in the corners, and these bees were not uh, flush with a lot of liquid, and they need nectar in order to be able to build wax. So that accounts for five of the ten. The other four standard hives that I have are on the original pad locations in my yard. The first one is a cedar langstroth hive. The second one is my polystyrene 10 frame. The third is the eight frame langstroth hive. And the fourth one is a conventional 10 frame lang. Lang. That sounds so slang. I'm not fond of that term, so let's throw that off the cliff never to be used again. All of these hives are doing great. They're all first-year starters. 
Two of them are from splits, two are from swarms, and they are three boxes high and loaded with bees. They have reasonable stores, and the queens are producing good patterns, so not much to say about these. The last hive, number 10, is a top bar hive. The nuke on top of the top bar to provide bees to hopefully move in did not work. I was thrilled to death to see the bees on the top bar comb that I gave them before I left for Puerto Rico, but when I got back, they had all retreated back into the nuke on top. It's getting late to mess around with this thing, so this weekend I took matters into my own hands. I pulled each of the frames out one by one and cut the side and bottom bars off of the frames. I trimmed the foundation back to a V-shape using the pattern I had for the follower board and moved each of those frames into the top bar hive itself. It was an interesting job that was cutting the frames apart. Some had plastic foundation, and actually that made it easier, but challenging at the same time. Some were foundationless and took some tender love and care to make sure you did not break them from the top bar after you separated the sides and bottom. The way that I accomplished the feed is I used a vibration cutting tool and used it to cut through the bars and then pried them off. And then I used that same tool with a circular cutting, how do you say it, uh, blade and vibration cut through at the angle that I needed. I shot a video of the whole thing. It'll be produced at some point and I'll put it up and you could see how I achieved the task. Should you ever want to know how to do this? I did it in a pretty hasty manner because it was going to rain. There were storms coming into New Jersey. The bees were actually pretty cooperative, but I didn't quite get all the cuts right. When I set the frames down inside the top bar, they were a little askew. So I went in there on Monday, and as it was hitting, I trimmed them up a little bit better. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that they'll get to work in there and that hive will be made their own. Thus far, it's been a little disjointed and I'd really like to see them settle in in time for winter, which is approaching. So one last thing about the local hive report, and that is about feeding. All of the hives in our yard are new, meaning there were splits or swarms. And I talked about feeding new hives in my episodes when you pull a package and these are not immune to that concept. I have top feeders on every hive in the yard except for the top bar and I topped off each one on Monday with food in anticipation of getting them stimulated for the fall flow and also because I noticed that their stores are short inside the hives that I inspected. I even put a Boardman feeder inside the top bar hive so they'd have something to eat. It has been bone dry here in July and August and a little supplemental water and sugar should tie them over until the fall flow starts in earnest. The nuke didn't get left out either. I made a migratory cover for that box Monday afternoon on my table saw and cut a hole in it to put a mason jar feeder. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that hive, but I can tell you I went out and checked that hive after feeding it at about 5 o'clock, and this morning that jar was empty. I could combine it with another hive, or I think what I'm going to do is set it between two hives stacked together and see if I can overwinter it in a nuke format. That's what I have in mind for now. We'll see if 
time changes my direction. So that's it for the local hive report. Ten hives, all works in progress and being cared for in anticipation of fall and overwintering. So before we dive headlong into the topics of the episode, let me take a moment to share some of our contact information and some of our websites so that you can check things out. All of the topics, if they have corresponding links and information, will be on our show notes. You can get to that at www.bkcorner.org. Maintain a Facebook page for the podcast. It's facebook.com slash beekeeperscorner. Another place you can go for resources, it's kind of a joint Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association slash BK Corner YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash NWNJBA. And last but not least, if you want to write to me, any comments, corrections, information you want to share, you could send a message to me at kevin at bkcorner.org. So one last bit of uh, business. I want to just take a moment and say thank you to those. Uh, Never want to forget to say thank you for the PayPal donations that have come our way to support the effort. Okay, let's roll. Segment number one, honey. It's what's for dinner. This has been out there a while, but I haven't had a chance to get to the coverage of it. We've been advocates of keeping honey on the hive, not feeding sugar water solutions whenever possible. Now researchers are coming back with the science to back up that notion. In a study conducted by the University of Illinois Institute for Genomic Biology, researchers reviewed foragers for genetic gene expression when comparing bees feeding on honey versus sugar solutions. They examined the fat bodies of the foragers and found that carbohydrate sources can react differently in the body. They found hundreds of genes that show differences when fed high fructose corn syrup versus honey or sucrose, which is table sugar, versus honey. The paper published July 17, 2014 is entitled Diet-Dependent Gene Expression in Honeybees, Honey versus Sucrose or High Fructose Corn Syrup by Marsha M. Wheeler and Jean E. Robinson. This is a quote from the paper for which I'll expand and explain in a moment. Quote, These results suggest that constituents in honey differentially regulate physiological processes that sucrose and high fructose corn syrup may not be equivalent nutritional substitutes to honey, end quote. It goes on further to say, quote, gene ontology enrichment analysis showed honey upregulates genes associated with processes such as aromatic amino acid family metabolic process, as well as oxidation reduction, end quote. It's important to note some of the further detail of this, so I'll go on on what additional was added. Honey additionally upregulated the gene, and I'm going to say here that it gave a gene name here, but I won't attempt to say it, as it's one of those scientific non-pronounceable terms. So gene name, whose activity is known to be induced by the plant compounds and have toxicological significance in the presence of pesticides. 
high fructose corn syrup and sucrose relative to honey resulted in the upregulation of different biological processes, end quote. So let's ponder what all that meant now that I've shared that with you. You can think of it this way. Eat one food, grow up a different way. Eat another food, grow up a certain way. Mother always said you are what you eat. In this case, gene expression, and specifically some genes that could be interesting in how immune systems work and other systems inside the bee, are predicated on what they eat. And the findings lead to believe that high fructose corn syrup and or table sugar are not equivalent to eating honey. Now we've been saying all along that honey brings so much more to the table. It's coming from plants and nectar sources which have vitamins and minerals and other compounds in them where simple sugars and or high fructose corn syrup or those type of feeds just generally don't have the same nutritional profiles. So one of the things that was called out about the way the study was conducted is that they used bees that were 18 to 21 days or older. These were chosen because older bees readily consume various carbohydrate sources in the hive. And if you think about younger bees, especially larvae and things like that, they're fed. Is it possible that malnutrition in honeybees is as a result of how they are being fed by us, the beekeepers? Does substitution of high fructose corn syrup or sugar solutions make bees more susceptible to immune system impairment and pesticides? In this study, it is concluded that chronic feeding of high fructose corn syrup and or sugar solutions can lead to hundreds of differences in gene expression in the fat body of the bee. The part of the body that acts much in the way that the liver is in the human, filtering out toxins. And it could be a contributing component to the complicated problems causing the decline of the honeybee. So I'll provide a link in the show notes to the research on this. And I guess the takeaway for beekeepers is, ta-da, leave them honey. If they have honey on there, don't take it all. Try and feed them honey. If you have excess honey, harvest that off and feed it back to them later instead of mixing some sugar solutions. Or better yet, don't feed them at all. I mean, that's that's what I think the go-to preference is. Again, if you're starting out with new hives, let me emphasize that the common wisdom is to feed them. But generally, honey is a better product. And, you know, I didn't mention this in the local hive report, but we did have some honey here. Honey that was given to me by another beekeeper, which I'm positive is fine because he's feeding it to his bees. And honey that I had harvested, and I'm mixing it down with water and feeding it back. I did have sugar solutions, meaning sugar that I bought in a pail in large quantities, and I'm feeding that also. So they're getting a combination of these things. But if at all possible, when you have honey, leave it for them or feed it back to them. Segment number two I've given the label, How Big is the Bread Box? I've heard the stat concerning the history of honeybee colony quantities that exist in the United States quoted in various talks over the past few years, but could never find the source of the data that was often quoted. I finally, and after a long while of keeping an eye out for this, found a source. It was right under my nose the whole time. 
The source of the information is the U.S. Honey Report for producers with five or more colonies, a report provided by the U.S. government. It so happens that this is something that is published routinely in one of the popular beekeeping magazines, but I never gave it any notice. So one footnote to call out. My guess about these numbers is that they do not take into account those who didn't participate in the report, namely the hobbyist beekeepers that most of us fall into who listen to this podcast. So here's a summary of the data and the source. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has data back to 1945. The count in 1945 was about 4.3 million colonies. It was an ad all-time high, over 5.5 million colonies in 1950, and then had a steady decline until 1982. In 1982, it was about 4.3 million colonies once more, and you might as well consider it a reset back to 1945. Parasitic mites came in, and subsequently the decline was on from there. Around 3.3 million in 1987, 3 million and change in 1992, 2.7 million in 1997, and just over 2.5 million in 2001. And it went up a little bit, somewhere around 2.4 million in 2007. The last year that data was reported on in the source I found was 2.64 million colonies in 2013, up 4% from 2012. So I suppose that doesn't translate very well in my run-through, so I'll provide a link where you can see a nice graph for that. I have to wonder what the number is if you add hobbyist beekeepers, but there's another interesting tidbit in a report I found. It says that China has 6 million bee colonies managed by 200,000 beekeepers keeping western and eastern honeybees. I have to say, now that I finally figured out where this number came from, I read recently or heard it in passing somewhere that the U.S. government was looking to save money by killing off this honey report that I just mentioned. I don't want to make a blanket assumption that this is a mistake because I don't have any visibility on the value or context in the cost that it takes to produce this report. But from a sentimental standpoint, I do hope that the involved parties look properly at this before they pull the plug and assess the value of the information that would be lost and especially the continuity if it all goes away. So information in the chart was embedded in a resource I found called Global Bee Colony Disorder and Threats. You can look that up on your favorite search engine or you can go to our show notes for a link. Segment number three, sublethal imidacloprid. It's been widely reported that neonicotinoid pesticides are potentially involved in colony collapse disorder, and specifically one product is often referenced called imidacloprid. Imidacloprid is produced by Bayer and is found in a variety of commercial insecticides. Products by the name of Admire, Condifor, Gaucho, Premier, Premise, Provado, and Marathon all contain imidacloprid as the active ingredient. 
Imidacloprid is highly toxic to bees if used as a foliar application, especially during flowering, but is not considered a hazard to bees when used as a seed treatment. But there's new evidence emerging that is calling this into question. Bees affected by pesticide may not die immediately, but they may be practically useless to the colony or may be able, unable to forage or navigate and hence become lost and perish outside the hive. Much focus has been given to the exposure of adult bees that forage and come into contact, but there's another side, a side that is not tested for for product approval, and that's chronic exposure to the larval stage inside the hive. A study from the journal Plus One was put out in 2012 concerning the impact of imidacloprid on adult and larval honeybees. The title of the study I'm going to reference is Impaired Olfactory Associative Behavior of Honeybee Workers Due to Contamination of Imidacloprid in the Larval Stage. I've commented in past episodes that reading these studies requires a reasonable amount of patience in a dictionary. Terms, stats, scientific jargon are par for the course, and sometimes, no matter how many times you read them, they still don't make sense to the layperson. With that, it is probably not unusual to recommend one for general reading, but this one, I will start out with a recommendation as, yes, you should read this. If you want a summary of imidacloprid and its impact to honeybees, this particular study is a keeper. There is just a ton of summary research recapped in the article about the whole topic. All that aside, the message and the outcome is clear. If testing included larvae for neonics, there would be a reason to look deeper. So I'll cut to the chase about the outcome of this study as I see it. Larvae are fed. They don't eat raw sources directly from nature. Another way to say this is they don't eat nectar and pollen from plants. They do, however, get what nurse bees feed them and in a processed state. They are also exposed to the contact with pesticides that are in the environment brought back to the hive. The findings conclude that exposing larvae to low doses did not have an effect on the larvae emerging pupation, but it did impact their long-term olfactory associative behavior. So let me explain what that means, and I'll have to ask you to just hang in there with me for a second on this. With exposures of 0.04 nanograms in the larval stage, larvae had impact to their dense network of neuronal processes and glia, referred to by the term mushroom bodies or MBs. MBs extend through the midbrain and are mainly composed of long, densely packed nerve fibers. The mushroom bodies are involved in learning and memory and particularly for smell. In addition to the effect on the mushroom bodies, low doses of imidacloprid also impacted antenna lobes. Honeybees depend upon mushroom bodies and antenna lobes in the brain to learn and memorize food locations as well as their homing roots when they are out collecting. Consider how small 0.04 nanograms are. There is a concept in testing that you will find a concentration of exposure of a product that will kill 50% of those exposed. 
We've talked about this in past episode. It's referred to as the LD50. LD stands for lethal dose. The way to think of this is if you fed a product to bees, what amount of the product would have to be exposed to kill 50% of the test subjects? In the case of imidacloprid, the oral LD50 is 0.5 to 70 picograms. To give a reference point, 70 picograms is 0.07 nanograms. And as we said, 0.04 nanograms impact the larvae. The summary of the paper states it this way. While sublethal exposure does not kill larvae, it is highly likely that it impacts them as an adult as they won't be able to learn and memorize food locations, homing routes, and therefore they fail to return to their hives, causing a reduction of bee products and getting even worse to induce CCD. So because honeybee larvae could be affected by contamination of imidacloprid as low as 0.04 nanograms, neonicotinoid insecticides should be applied very carefully. I have to say in response to this is that this evidence just keeps piling and piling and piling. I want to take a reasonable, cautious approach and not run around like the sky is falling. But in this case, I think, again, the evidence is mounting. I recently listened to an episode of another podcast, the Kiwi Mana podcast, where Hank Tenekes was the guest. Highly recommend going and listening to that. KiwiMana.co.nz is the address. Uh, the thing that scares me most about this is the shelf life of this. And the comparison, and maybe it's uh, alarming to do this, but you can't help but draw the comparison to DDT. And uh, I think... Dr. Tenekis has a really important message, which is the impact to the food chain. It starts at one level, and it impacts all the way from the top to the bottom. And uh, again, I, I don't want to get out my bongo drum here, but I see science like this and figure sooner or later, someone has to act upon the proper way to take this information and make changes. Our last segment of the episode, segment four, bumblebees with honeybee diseases. Following our theme of while you are away, this one has been on the pile for a while and was first reported in February of this year from the BBC World Series. Sourced from the journal Nature, there is an impetus for beekeepers to do their best to keep bees free from disease. And it has been found that bumblebees are susceptible to formed to deformed wing virus and the fungal parasite Nosema serrani. I believe this uh, article was shared by a listener, and if memory serves me right, but it may not be, so if it wasn't uh, this person, forgive me, but I think it was Joe Devonshire that shared this across. So it says, bumblebees do not suffer with varroa mites, and while not conclusive, it's believed that honeybees are the source of the problems. Through some form of transmission, probably by visiting the same plants. Well, the article leads you to believe that that's speculation. It is possible, too, that a suggestion that it could be sourced from managed bumblebees that have escaped into the feral population. But the simplest answer is probably it came from honeybees. That's a Kevin moment there. 
This particular report originated from a study in the United Kingdom, and while there's no evidence that it is showing up globally as of yet, uh, chances are it probably is. It's only because no one has looked at the science of this in alternate locations, and not because it hasn't happened. At least that's, again, my speculation. In Great Britain and the Isle of Man, resources found that 11% of bumblebees were infected with deformed wing virus, and 7% were infected with Nozema serrani. By comparison, about 35% of the honeybees in that region carried DWV, and 9% had the fungus. The British Beekeepers Association got in the mix and suggested that, through an announcement, that their beekeepers should be employing good husbandry practices. Beekeepers can take steps to reduce the impact of pests and diseases on honeybee colonies using biotechnical controls and practices such as apiary hygiene, regular brood comb changes ensuring the colonies are strong and well-nourished, and the use of authorized treatment. So one footnote to close this segment out. While researching this report, I found an ironic paper from Plus One about research done in July of 2008 that focused on pathogen spillover for commercially reared bumblebees to wild pollinators. It's an interesting case, almost foreshadowing of things to come. So I'll provide a link to those two documents. One of them is, Does Pathogen Spillover from Commercially Reared Bumblebees Threaten Wild Pollinators? That one can be found in Plus One. So we have come to the end of our normal segment features and enter into the back of the book. We call this the roundtable section of the podcast. Just a general smattering of topics. First one is about stinging nettle. This comes by way of listener Steve Bucknagy. I mentioned it in the interview with Tim Schuler in our last episode and had a little more time since then to look into what Steve shared. He had heard of some old-time beekeepers in East Europe using stinging nettle plants to treat for mites. They would break off branches and leaves and lay them on top of the brood to treat. The nettles are very high in formic acid, and when one comes into contact with the needle-like hairs on the plants, it results in a natural release. Not a pleasurable thing for a human being. As you rub across these, they create a burning, itching feeling, which is the formic acid on your skin. Steve says he has not seen stinging nettles in Virginia where he lives, but a map that I found indicates it grows there, and just about everywhere else in the United States. More specifically, looking for nettles along riverbanks and streams, floodplains, and woodlands. In North America, the common stinging nettle is what it's called. And another note is that it grows apparently in the prairies, but I've never been to any of those. Steve shared that he remembered as a child finding them when he was playing in the woods near his house in shorts. Steve, that doesn't sound like much fun. For more information about nettles, where to find them, how to identify them, and more, check our show notes. I found a pretty good resource, Wiki, that goes over the basics of them. You can also check out a link that Steve shared about the use of stinging nettles used in beekeeping from an old edition of American Bee Journal. Again, these links are in our show notes.
You know, it dawns on me as I close this topic out that I never really mentioned why this matters to beekeeping. One of the products you treat mites for is formic acid. In fact, several products are in that realm, and formic acid is one of the things that will penetrate through the cell into mites that are in with capped larvae. So formic acid is not that impactful to bees. In fact, you'll find formic acid in honey to some extent. So uh, good for bees, not good for mites. And that is the reason why this would be a potential way to do formic acid treatments in a natural manner. I would say, hmm, this is a tough one. It'd be an interesting experiment, but the fact of the matter is you could buy products commercially that have controlled doses of formic acid formulated not to impact colonies. So while this is nice to know, I would use a little bit of caution if you were going to go this route, as you're probably better off buying the commercial products formulated and using them following the label. Roundtable topic number two, great tomato tasting. This past week, I took a day off from work and participated with our Beekeepers Association at the Rutgers Great Tomato Tasting Event at the Snyder Research Farm in Pittstown, New Jersey. You might say, what does a tomato tasting have to do with beekeeping? Good question. While tomatoes get the top billing, the event is about showcasing agricultural processes and products in New Jersey, and there are other things on display along with the dozens of varieties of tomatoes. For example, they had someone making peach salsa, apples, fruits, and, from us, the beekeepers, honey. Each of our beekeepers brings a couple bottles of honey, and participants of the show come to our table and get a little spoon where they can take a taste. We had creamed honey, blueberry honey, wildflower, and clover honey for them to sample. People are surprised about the differences of the different types of clover honey, for example, in comparison to each other, and the flavors of the different variants. And they love, love, love tasting raw, unprocessed honey. It made for a really interesting one-on-one interaction with the public and a great afternoon to promote beekeeping. If you ever wanted to try a honey tasting event, let me give you two tidbits of advice that we learned. The first one is creamed honey is the first product they get because they scoop their spoon in and lick it off the spoon. Then what you do is you put the rest of the honeys in a honey bear and they could squirt a little taste on their spoon and use the same spoon throughout the line. So during the course of the event, we of course took some time to check out the tomatoes. This event is something that our club does every year, but it was the first time that I personally had taken part in the show. Who knew there were so many tomatoes? (laughs) I found one that had a smoked flavor, just like it had been smoked in a smoker. That was probably the biggest surprise. Cool stuff. People were especially curious about the creamed honey that we provided, going back to that, as it was not something that there's a lot of experience with in the U.S., The conversations with the individuals visiting were great, and you have to love the reaction of the little ones who came through the line. So this leads to two topics for Roundtable coming up, creamed honey and infused honey. I'll explain that in a moment when I get there. 
We want to say thanks to the Snyder Farm for all that you do for agriculture in New Jersey and Rutgers for supporting beekeeping in general. There is nothing like a Jersey tomato in the summertime. Roundtable number three, I labeled this one creamed honey update. Back in March, I took some time to experiment and make a couple batches of creamed honey. I made two batches, one from seed with a commercial product that I purchased from Whole Foods and another from crystallized honey that I had in my cupboard and I ground it with a mortar and pestle. I set both of the products aside in our basement to fully crystallize and they've been there ever since. The other day when I pulled some honey for the tomato festival, I pulled out the products to see how they turned out. The commercially seeded one is really, really good. I like the consistency of the commercial product source, but the taste wasn't that appealing when compared to my locally harvested stuff. I'm happy to report that the mix is a perfect consistency and it has my honey flavor and I couldn't be happier with it. Concerning the one I made with my own sweat equity, the one that is unfortunately not 100%, I ground and I ground and I ground my crystallized honey with the mortar and pestle, but there's still a touch of grittiness to the texture. So the secret is commercial suppliers use commercial grinders and they could really grind it. It tastes good and it's really creamy, but in comparison with the other one, it's not as good of a mouthfeel. By the way, here's a Kevin moment. I like the aspect that it was my honey that started that mix. So I'm going to take some time with that product and grind it some more with my mortar and pestle to see if I can get it smoother. I want to say that it was 100% ours and not something that started with someone else's seed honey. I guess in time, maybe it's a stupid notion over time, but it will all be our honey because that original seed will go away, but the crystallization in the product that I started with the commercial one, it's going to go away and it'll be all my honey. But to me, if I gave it to someone and said, try this, they would love it, but I want it to be better. I want it to be the stuff from my own sweat equity. You know, it's not like we'll suffer by eating it. <laughs> so, end of Kevin moment. Do consider trying this yourself as creamed honey is just spectacular. I produced a video in March when I made these batches, and now that I have a mature, finished product, I could shoot the follow-up and post it to our YouTube channel. Look for that in the coming week or so, as I'll make time to put that feature up. So now... On to the next adventure. For roundtable number four, I want to talk about infused honey. I've done this unscientifically. Just put stuff in honey, mixed it in, and it tastes really good. Honey by itself, of course, is spectacular. But I've had honey with added flavors, and that too is delicious. At the tomato tasting, a handful of people did comment about honeys they had over time with infused flavors. I've had this pile on my topic for a while and it seems a good time to talk about how to create specialized honey at home. So I'm going to kind of run through these relatively quickly for the sake of brevity, but I found these recipes on food.com 
and we'll provide a link to the feature on our show notes. And I've also got some information from past shows where people have come and talked about products of the hive and it made infused honeys, but I'll stick to the food.com resources. So let me give you five flavors and a general method to infuse your honey for each one of them. The first one, and what couldn't be more perfect with honey, is lemon when you're going to have tea. Take one cup of honey, one tablespoon of grated lemon peel, and two fresh slices of lemons, juiced and tossed in. This is optional. I'll explain that in a second. Heat the honey and lemon peel in a pot for about 10 minutes. The lemon slices are optional, but give it a little bit more kick. You're going to simmer that on low, about 115 degrees, if you're going to put a thermometer in it. You take it off the heat, let it sit for one to two hours. You can actually let it sit for one to two weeks if you want to do that. You're going to strain it in the end through some sort of paper filter, and then you can consume it. It's going to be spectacular. The next one is cinnamon honey. Very similar process. One cup of honey, four to six sticks of cinnamon, one pinch of ground cinnamon is the optional piece. You know, cinnamon honey is much the same as lemon. Switch out the lemon for cinnamon sticks, and you could use ground cinnamon if that's your preference. Heat it on low on your stovetop for about 10 minutes. Take it off the heat and let it steep a couple hours or a couple weeks, as we said before. Strain it, if need be, for serving. In this case, cinnamon, and especially a pinch if you're using fresh stuff, can be pretty pungent. Similar to that is ginger honey, one cup of honey, one tablespoon of finely chopped ginger root, one pinch of ground ginger. For ginger honey, follow the same process, but swap in ginger root or a pinch of ground ginger instead of cinnamon. You want to use fresh ginger for the most punch, but you're going to go slow here as ginger can really bite even through honey. The next one is using cloves, not to be confused with clover, and make clove honey. One cup of honey and five to ten whole cloves. For me, this is the taste of Thanksgiving, trying to mix honey with some whole cloves. It gives that great roundness to the honey and makes it put off that great aroma in the house when warming up the clove because it's going to warm and exude the essential oils. Same idea, just heat it for 10 minutes or so. 115 degrees, no hotter than that. Don't cook your honey. And then strain it if you want to take the cloves out. They're easy to just pick out. The last one might seem a little unusual, but it makes sense. Apple cider vinegar honey. So you use one cup of honey and two to three tablespoons of apple cider vinegar. Make sure you pick a really good quality one. You might not put these two things together at first, but honey with a bit of acidity is bright and vinegar has a long touted history of being really healthy for you. Honey and vinegar is a one-two punch from a health standpoint. This one you can heat to 115 degrees, 10 minutes or whatever, and as soon as it comes off the stove, you can get to consuming it or let it cool to room temperature. You can consider it also for marinades or an elixir in your tea. You can even drizzle this over fresh fruit like peaches for an extra added flavor. 
think about some of those combinations where you have honey and some people drizzle um, the other kind of vinegar. I'm drawing a blank. Oh, uh, yeah, balsamic vinegar. Same kind of concept. So you can go to food.com and look for lemon-infused honey. And in parentheses, with variations, or go to our show notes for links to the recipes. It has a little more detail about the instructions and the products on how to make them. Roundtable number five, this is a term for this episode. It's a new term I learned about describing the emergence of an insect. Eclosion is the word. Its definition, emergence of an insect from its pupil case or the hatching of a larvae from an egg. It has its origin from eclore, which is a derivative of the Latin word excludere, which means to hatch out. When a bee changes and it has completed the metamorphosis from a larvae to an adult, but is still in the pupa, it is termed pharate. When a bee eclosion occurs, the emerging bee leaves behind a pupal exoskeleton called an exuvium. The exuvium is so thin and membranous in ants, bees, and wasps that it becomes crumpled as it is shed. The interesting thing about eclosion in that membrane, the exuvium, is that that's what's left behind. And if you think about what a wax moth is after, they only go to the area of the brood chamber and the brood frames because they're after that cast off when a bee emerges and over time another fact about this is that more and more bees emerge from a cell they they do leave behind that crumpled thing but there are times when it stays intact and that cell will get smaller and smaller and smaller and if you find a really old brood frame you might notice that the cells are really small there because all the castings from emergence have just piled up over time. So, eclosion, emergence of an insect from its pupil case. So, we've come to the end of the program. I wanted to uh, insert a couple last-minute closing comments here. The first one is about a resource that recently came to my attention. It's a training resource for beekeepers, and it's specifically targeted towards new beekeepers. It's a pay model and subscription service and if you see this I won't say the name because that's just not how I roll but uh, I'm not impressed I listened to the first part of the solicitation and there was just factual information incorrect The, the delivery was adequate that's a good way to put it but not overly insightful And there are so many resources out there, and I'm not saying people shouldn't get paid to do what they do. I've seen some training programs coming out of colleges and so on. If you're going to spend your money, please go to somewhere like University of Florida that has a beekeeping university or something like this. There's no reason why local beekeepers can't start up training when they have their chops, but when they're relaying wrong information and they're 
I'll say this, and it's not very appealing, but again, I didn't mention the resource here, but maybe you figured it out. They're preying on unsuspecting new beekeepers who have no idea whether the quality of the training is good or bad or indifferent. Yes, they have content. Yes, some of it will probably be good, but just as much of it is probably going to be inaccurate or inappropriate. I call myself a novice beekeeper. I relay the information, so maybe I'm guilty of this, but I'm not charging you a, a subscription, so to speak. If you want to donate, that's fine. I don't even push that angle. But this one just seemed egregious to me. So, uh, really? No. Stay away from that one. If you see the uh, advertisements for it, and it's being promoted heavily in beekeeping circles, I don't know how they got my information. Um, You know, maybe over time it'll improve. Maybe over time they'll have uh, good resources coming in. Shame on me for looking at it from the outside in and uh, throwing stones, but... uh, Initial impressions, not very favorable. And again, I would suggest that there are universities doing research that are offering beginning beekeeping programs, pay to learn, and if you're going to invest your money, I think you're better off going in that direction. So on our nicer note, tomorrow night is our executive meeting for our Beekeepers Association. I have a couple things on the agenda. Uh, Bob Kloss is our Presidente. And um, we know that we're going to be planning for the spring meeting next year. Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association is going to be hosting the state-level meeting for spring. We're going to be planning also our meetings for the remainder of the year. We don't have anything on calendar yet for September, October, November, December. But we're going to get there. Uh, We spend some time in each of our meetings doing lessons learned. Recapping what we've been doing, how it went, what could be done and better. And, um, you know, especially if we're going to take it on in the future. So, for example, we've done a couple fairs recently, and we always review them in what Bob has shared with us, a term after action report. (laughs) That just sounds so cool in AOR. Uh, Just looking at what we did, how it went, what we could do better, and... um, making sure we're not doomed to repeat the same mistakes next year. And, of course, you know, the typical operation of the club, um, finances and business topics and membership stuff and whatever. So um, not the most enthralling thing to participate in, but it's a good time. Our members, especially our exec board, we all like each other and we have a good time chatting. And probably half the conversation is talked about what we saw or how our bees are doing or what our observations are. So it makes for a nice night out while getting some work done. Uh, speaking of the fairs, in, enjoyed both of them this year. We participated in the Warren County and Hunterdon County Fair. I had the pleasure of uh, being in the booth and meeting. Also the uh, Honey Queen from the American Beekeeping Federation. Um, just spectacular. She does such a good job. Um, it, we she came actually typically what happens is at warren county fair we have a princess and at the hundred and fair we have the queen or vice versa this year for both events we had the uh queen attend and susanna just did a spectacular job there's some uh reports of of her activities while she was at the hundred and county fair on nj.com we'll be posting that to the facebook page and uh again just if you have the opportunity, the American Beekeeping Federation Queen program is just 
an outstanding program, and please support it in any way that you can. One other note of interest is uh, exchanging some emails with Tim Schuler, looking to have him back on the program in a support role or actually just talking to him outright again like we did before in a follow-up. I know Tim sent over a note. They're crafting a pesticides, fungicides, and herbicides handout for homeowners, farmers, and commercial growers uh, looking for some insights from others in the crafting of that brochure. And uh, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, we're literally in some engagements with our local farming community. One of the reasons we were at the Rutgers event was just to participate in that space and have a good dialogue. So um, looking forward to that handout as a resource for those type of discussions. So in a passing email to uh, Tim, and I'll have to reach out to Bob, I was thinking of having a three-way conversation between the three of us. I think that would be really interesting. And maybe even this weekend we'll put something together and get to chat with Bob tomorrow. And uh, I'm probably going to speak to Tim Schuler on the phone tomorrow too. So we'll see how this weekend comes. Uh, look for a Google Hangout invitation if you want to come watch us record that live sometime over the weekend. And potentially participate in the chat um, I know that Kiwi Mana Gary has been hosting some of these Google Hangouts where he's just inviting any any everyday beekeeper to come in and participate there was one recently but I was out of town and didn't get to participate in it and I'll have to go back and see if Gary recorded that and put it up I'm assuming it's up on the channel but those are always fun too is just to get a bunch of beekeepers in talking about beekeeping um sometimes they're great sometimes they're terrible but a lot of times there's a lot of interesting conversation and dialogue i peek around the internet every once in a while for some beekeeping news and i found something from businessinsider.com a documentary about burt's bees and the person who is literally on the container and some of the information a new movie documentation document yeah one of those things where they talk about people. A documentary <laughs> was released about Bert from Bert's Bees. He's a real person. He's subsequently sold the company but still represents them. And uh, that looked interesting. You have to pay to watch it. I'm not sure yet that I'm ready to invest in that. Where I have time someday, I might go take a look. But uh, also notice that Seth Belson, the former um, pretty recent president of the New Jersey Beekeepers Association was featured in the New Jersey Courier Post in a video they had up on their website uh, promoting beekeepers. Uh, I've always had an appreciation for Seth when I've had the chance to talk to him and uh, his articulation about the plight of the honeybee and um, just being a good beekeeper and things like that is always spot on. So uh, I watched that. I'll have a link to it up on our facebook page in short order and uh great job by seth just wanted to call that out and uh say go take a look at the video if you have a moment and i guess uh in the grand scheme of things that's about where we're going to end it i'll remind you one more time for uh resources you could look to bkacorner.org that's our website you can also get there by bkacorner.com and if you didn't know it, every one of our show notes lists all the topics, the time that the topic starts and ends for the segments. 
I always wonder why I call out all these segments and all these roundtables and whatever. It's because you can go back to the web site and look at the show notes and figure out if you want to listen to some specific thing again. Uh, BKCorner.org is the website. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thanks for the support and for stopping by the Beekeeper's Corner podcast. Until next time, take care, everyone, and be well.